Hello, I'm James Davis. And I'm James Saunders. In this episode, we're going to continue discussing issues around death in litigation. This time, we'll be focusing in particular on aspects of contentious probate disputes and issues that arise during the course of the administration of an estate. Our first topic to kick us off is Lark and Nugus letters. Lark and Nugus letters are a frequently occurring and fairly sensible pre-action step in many disputes and are used by those who wish to challenge a will to request a statement of evidence from those involved in the taking of instructions for and preparation of the disputed will. Statements should also address the circumstances in which the will was executed. It is a matter of professional conduct for solicitors to answer such letters where they are able to do so, and the onus of providing frank evidence extends to non-solicitors as well, but there it is a point of best practice, according to the decision in re-cattling. Where answers are not given, there may be costs consequences if litigation follows unnecessarily. However, it's important to remember that sending a Lark and Nugus letter is not a passport to a comprehensive array of answers, nor to accessing a full will file, nor is it even a basis to compel production of a copy of the will to a beneficiary. The Law Society practice note on this is really required reading when making a Lark and Nugus request. And it makes clear that where a solicitor is asked to give information, but the solicitor is not the executor of the will, then they remain subject to privilege and confidentiality obligations in respect of their deceased client. Those are obligations which can only be waived by the personal representatives. Therefore, where a solicitor fails to provide information, far from acting improperly, as is so often assumed to be the case, it may well be that professionally they're bound to refrain from providing the details without the sanction of the personal representatives. On a similar theme, and surprising though it may sound, a beneficiary is not entitled as of right to a copy of the will until that will has been entered into the register as a public document after being submitted for probate. Executors can, of course, be asked to disclose a copy of the will voluntarily and should, in the vast majority of cases, do so. But the issue can arise in acute cases of family disagreement where copies are often withheld. In those circumstances and in other cases where disclosure may be required to advance matters before a claim is issued, what then can a beneficiary do? A good point of reference is the decision in Gardner and Tabit which surveys a number of available options in a case in which our very own Aidan Briggs appeared for the successful applicant. One option is to seek a summons from the probate registry under section 123 of the Senior Courts Act, requiring persons to bring in testamentary documents. Said documents include a will, a draft will, and written instructions for a will made by or at the request of or under the instructions of the testator. Section 122 of the Senior Courts Act can also be of use, and that provides jurisdiction for the courts and the probate registries to examine an individual in open court, whether or not proceedings are pending, if there are reasonable grounds for believing that person has knowledge of any document which is, or which purports to be, a testamentary document. Looking beyond the options which James has considered to the CPR, there are another potential set of avenues for disclosure to be obtained by beneficiaries. The first is pre-action disclosure, which can be sought under CPR Rule 3117, but this will only be applicable as against a party which is likely to be a party to the contemplated claim. In all likelihood, the claim will be brought against the PRs of the estate, who may not be the same individuals as those who hold testamentary information. Third-party disclosure applications are another possibility, 
but they can only be utilised where a claim has already been issued. For all of this then, one crucial point to bear in mind is that a Lark and Nugis letter is, in the clear words of Master Clark in the decision in Gardner, not enforceable by an order of the court, or at least not in direct terms without using one of the disclosure options that we've just discussed. Now our next topic may seem an odd one for what is a cutting-edge podcast, and that concerns the test for testamentary capacity. Uh, That test has been settled for over 150 years and, of course, stems from the decision in Banks and Goodfellow. So why, then, are we raising the matter today? Well, the 150-year-old test is topical once more, as the applicability of the Banks test was recently called into question in the decision of Clitheroe and Bond. By way first of a brief recap, the test, as stated in Banks, requires that a testator should a. understand the nature of the testamentary act and its effects, b. shall understand the extent of the property of which he or she is disposing, c. shall be able to comprehend and appreciate the claims to which they ought to give effect, and with a view to the later object, under point d, that no disorder of the mind shall poison his affections, pervert his sense of right, or prevent the exercise of his natural faculties. Now, the test is frequently accompanied in the authorities where it is discussed by the so-called golden rule, and that was summarised in the case of Key and Key as follows. Where a solicitor is instructed to prepare a will for an aged testator, or for one who has been seriously ill, he should arrange for a medical practitioner first to satisfy himself as to the capacity and understanding of the testator, and to make a contemporaneous record of his examination and finding. But it's important to bear in mind that this is not a rule of law, but rather it's a rule of good practice and a a guide aimed at avoiding disputes over capacity. As for Clitheroe, the appellants in that case sought to argue that the Banks and Goodfellow test and the burdens of proof which accompany it were no longer good law, and that instead the Mental Capacity Act 2005 should now be preferred when assessing questions of testamentary capacity. In our experience, at least, medical practitioners conducting capacity assessments often apply the test as set out in the MCA, which they are, generally speaking, more used to using in practice to assess capacity of live patients, rather than applying the test in Banks and Goodfellow. And I know, James, recently you had one such case where this issue was in focus. It was, and in fact, it was a case where the testator was just taking the decision to write his children out of the world, his adult children, uh, and replace them instead with a, with a close friend as the principal beneficiary. Now, correctly, the solicitor advised that some evidence, contemporaneous evidence, should be obtained to confirm that the testator had capacity. And the solicitor also went one further than than seeking confirmation from a GP. Uh, The solicitor advised that a specialist's view should be sought. And so there was, in fact, it was a private consultation with a consultant uh, in old age psychiatry who met with a testator, who talked things through with the testator, and then did a a short report saying that he discussed matters with the testator. The testator had been able to discuss his family arrangements, his estate, uh, retain information, weigh it up, assess it and come to a decision. So all expressions that one finds in the Mental Capacity Act. He'd asked why the testator was deciding to write the children out and had received an answer which related to perceived action against the testator and a course of conduct afterwards. I'm not going to go into the gruesome details, but it was, you know, that the, there was a reason for this. Testator had seemed quite obsessed with this. And so the consultant had moved on. 
what then happened was after the testator passed away and the uh, Larkinigas request was sent uh, and the will challenge started, was, of course, this consultant's report is produced. The other side then send a copy of Banks and Goodfellow to the uh, consultants and say, well, it seems to us you applied the MCA, which was the wrong test. Here's the test you're meant to apply. And in particular, have a look at the question of disorder of the mind, poisoning his affections, perverting his sense of right, etc. On reading that, the consultant did a complete U-turn and actually came to the conclusion that the test data lacked capacity. Uh, and it was that final element in terms of the why he was doing it. He knew precisely what he was doing, the test data. But the question of why the consultant actually hadn't gone into beyond what appeared and was remarked upon at the times to be a slightly unusual explanation. And so, of course, what had originally been a step to secure evidence of the testator's capacity, in fact, ended up turning into precisely the opposite. And it's certainly useful for solicitors arranging golden rule reports to make pretty sure that the, the doctor doesn't say, so say, oh, yes, I know capacity assessments, I have to do them all the time, that actually they're testing capacity in the right way. So when we're looking at the right way to test capacity and comparing it with what exactly is said by the MCA, it's important to have regard, of course, to its provisions. Under the MCA, a person must be assumed to have capacity unless it is established that he lacks capacity. Further, a person lacks capacity in relation to a matter if, at the material time, he is unable to make a decision for himself in relation to the matter because of an impairment of or a disturbance in the functioning of the mind or brain. The inability to make a decision is elaborated under Section 3 of the Act, which provides as follows. A person is unable to make a decision for himself if he is unable a. to understand the information relevant to the decision, b. to retain that information, c. to use or weigh that information as part of the process of making the decision, or finally d. to communicate his decision, whether by talking, using sign language, or by any other means. Now, the court in Clitheroe held that the point could not be fully raised on the appeal as it was being raised on appeal for the first time. Nonetheless, Mrs Justice Falk chose to express an obiter opinion, holding that the appeal would have failed in any event. In Mrs Justice Falk's words, the bank's test has withstood the test of time and has not been swept away by the MCA. Her reasoning, in short, was that the MCA was principally designed to allow for decision-making to be carried out for those who presently lack capacity, rather than providing a universal test for capacity to enter particular transactions, in this case the making of a will. It was not the purpose of the MCA to provide a test for testamentary capacity. So Banks and Goodfellow therefore look set to stay as the leading case for the foreseeable future. Where the case of Clitheroe is potentially of greater use is for Mrs Justice Falk's consideration of delusions. The court held that for a delusion to exist, the relevant false belief must not be a simple mistake which could be corrected. It must be irrational and fixed in nature. Further, that it should be out of keeping with the person's background. Where a belief is not obviously extreme or irrational, one way of demonstrating that it amounts to a delusion, and indeed the obvious way in many cases, is to show by evidence that the individual could not in fact be reasoned out of their belief. But the court held that that requirement or that potential to not be able to reason them out of their belief was a matter of evidence rather than forming the fundamental part of the test for a delusion.
Another way of demonstrating delusions, which was relevant in Clitheroe's case, would be if it could be shown that the belief was formed and maintained in the face of clear evidence to the contrary, of which the individual was plainly aware, such that there is no sensible basis on which to conclude that the individual was simply mistaken or had forgotten the true position, as opposed to being delusional. It was held that the correct approach would allow a holistic assessment of all the evidence, taking account of the nature of the belief, the circumstances in which it arose, and whether there was any evidential basis for it, whether it was formed in the face of evidence to the contrary, the period of time for which it was held, and whether it was subject to any challenge. Delusions are but one form of incapacity, but McClitheroe provides some very useful guidance on what to look for in such cases and how to go about proving one's case. We have considered testamentary capacity, but another familiar ground for challenging wills is undue influence. A less common scenario in undue influence, but one which has undue influence at its heart, is the ability of the courts to grant a remedy by way of constructive trust not where undue influence is raised to invalidate a will, but instead where it has been deployed to effectively make a will that the testator was prevented from making themselves. Where a beneficiary under the will of a testator prevents him by undue influence from altering an existing will or from making a new will in favour of other persons, the court may impose a trust on the assets of the testator in the hands of that beneficiary for those other persons. In this way, the court can, in limited circumstances, make the will which the testator was prevented from making. A final point regarding contentious probate claims concerns standing to bring such claims before the court. It is trite, of course, that beneficiaries under a will, form a will, or on intestacy can bring a probate claim. It is also fairly tried and tested that a party with a potential claim under the Inheritance Act 1975 has standing to pursue a will challenge. One final category, however, uh, is liable to cause some potential confusion, and that is the category of creditors. Creditors of the estate will not have standing to bring a probate claim. They are concerned with due administration to ensure that assets are properly called in and applied. They are not, however, concerned with which beneficiary receives which asset. Creditors of beneficiaries, on the other hand, hold precisely that concern and may wish to see their debtor beneficiary obtain a greater share of estate funds. The Court of Appeal in Randall and Randall, therefore, held that creditors of beneficiaries did have sufficient standing to bring a probate claim challenging a will. Having discussed some recent developments, or, or lack thereof, when challenging wills, how to gather the materials to bring such claims, and the potential alternatives to the typical will challenge, we can move on to consider some lesser-known issues that may arise post-grant. The first such issue involves beneficiaries who are in occupation of estate property. Often, PRs are faced with a situation where a beneficiary was residing with the deceased at the time of their death, usually in the family home. As part of performing their administrative duties, the PR is required to convert the house into cash for distribution as residue. The problem then is that the beneficiary may not leave, and in that circumstance, what rights do the beneficiaries have to stay and the estate have to make them leave? Well, according to the case of Williams and Holland, a beneficiary has some, but not many, rights. A beneficiary with no other right to occupy, such as a contractual licence or, or a tenancy granted by the deceased, will not be a trespasser as against the estate, nor will the beneficiary be immediately liable for mean profits at the time of death or the grant being taken out. 
However, once the personal representatives have served a notice to quit, the beneficiary in occupation will be liable for mean profits for use in occupation after that notice expires. The executors can serve a notice at any time after death and commence proceedings before obtaining a grant, albeit a grant will be needed at the stage of judgment or order, as was discussed in the last podcast, whereas an administrator has to wait until they have obtained a grant of letters before being able to take any procedural steps. Different factors will of course arise if the property does not need to be sold and is instead retained on a will trust under the Trusts of Land and Appointment of Trustees Act 1996, which typically provides beneficiaries with a statutory right of occupation. In those circumstances, questions of prudent management may be wider and the trustees may be able to charge certain beneficiaries in occupation a fee for the use of the premises. At the other end of the spectrum of common issues is settlement and in particular settling claims against the estate brought by one of multiple co-executors who have approved the will and obtained the grant. Can one executor settle the dispute of their co-executor against the estate? And if so, how? Well, the short answer to that question is yes, one executor or administrator may compromise such a claim against the estate, utilising the statutory power of compromise under Section 15 of the Trustee Act 1925, which applies equally to personal representatives. The Act is in fact clearly worded as regards PRs who are expressly identified in the singular, being able to exercise the power alone without any co-representatives having to concur in the decision. This position was confirmed in the case of Re Houghton, where one executor admitted the claim of their co-executor in full, rather than in reduced or more limited terms. It was entirely for those representing the estate to say whether there should be litigation with the delay and costs that come along with that, or whether the claim should simply be acceded to. However, PRs should bear in mind their duties to beneficiaries not to allow hopeless or weak claims against the estate to simply go by way of compromise, and if there are doubts about whether to accept a compromise, it may be wise to seek the court's approval first. Thought can also be given if compromise appears unlikely as to whether it remains appropriate for the executor litigating against the estate to remain in office as such. Often, the fact of a clear and apparent conflict of interest between the executor and the estate may provide good grounds for removal. And one such example is the case of Heath and Heath, where one of the three executors was claiming sums against the estate by way of an implied contract or a quantum merit claim for care that he had provided to the deceased. In those circumstances, the court saw it as appropriate to order his removal as a personal representative. Thank you, James. That brings us to the end of this particular episode of Brief Tapes, looking at death in litigation. Thank you for listening. Please feel free to rate the podcast if you get a moment. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.